Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. This is a Literary Studies podcast, and I'm Natalia, one of the hosts on the channel. Today I will be speaking with Alison Fagan, and we will be discussing her publication, From the Edge, Chicana Chicano Border Literature and the Politics of Print. Hello, Alison. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being with us today. So before we uh, start the discussion of your uh, publication, do you mind if um, you just uh, tell us um, a few words about yourself, about your background? Sure. Um, So I uh, completed my PhD in English at uh, Loyola University, Chicago, um, where I got very interested in questions um, having to do with um, African-American as well as Chicano and Chicano literature. Um, And I completed my dissertation focusing on literature of the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, After I uh, finished my Ph.D., I came to James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I have been teaching ethnic American literature here for the last six years um, while working on and completing completing the book from the edge. So um, I teach courses in African American, in Latino literature, in uh, Chicano literature, um, and I continue to, to research and publish um, on Mexican American, Chicana, Chicano literature um, with a special focus on textual materialism. I'm very interested in the object mm-hmm. of the book and, and how books get to be, um, how they how they come to be, what we what we have right in our hands. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, how did this interest in Chicana Chicano literature develop? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I grew up um, on the south side of Chicago um, mm-hmm. in a city called Calumet City, um, which is a fairly diverse um, uh, city when I grew up. Um, and I, I went to school, um, high school, um, uh, uh, at, a, at a private school that was majority African-American and um, Hispanic and Latino. Um, and I had amazing teachers there who taught to the students that they had. Um, so one of the most memorable books memorable books that I read in high school was Sandra Cisneros's House on Mango Street. Mm. Um, and from there, I, those were the books that that seemed to talk to me about a place or, or people I was familiar with or things that I was familiar with. Um, when I went to college, I didn't realize, though, that you could study Chicano literature. And it wasn't a, something that, that really became apparent to me until I was in graduate school. And I had graduate faculty who opened my eyes to the whole world of, of publishing um, and to so many authors that I that I had never encountered before. So in some ways, I feel like a bit of an outsider, but um, mm-hmm. it's, it's 
the the literature is just completely fascinating, completely engrossing, and and somehow it feels like home to me. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's how I got interested in it. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to put it that you feel at home with that kind of literature. Um, so, what's the most intriguing part for this literature for you? Um, one of the things that I'm the most fascinated by is the way a lot of Latino and Chicano authors identify themselves as kind of betwixt and between, right? Um, not quite Mexican, not quite American. There's a there's lots of questions of what does it take to be Chicano? What does it take to be Latino? Is it about speaking the language? Is it about um, celebrating a particular kind of culture? Is it about where you live? Um, is it about who your friends are, who your family is? And all of those questions are, are really intriguing to me, um, especially as I teach, you know, undergraduates um, and do some volunteer work with high school students, where those are the questions that they're asking, regardless of their background, right? Where do I belong? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think the questions that they're asking, specifically with with respect to language, are so fascinating to me. What it means to be an insider or an outsider to the English language or to Spanish as well. So, so what uh, what students do? Um, what books do your students read uh, in terms of Chicano Chicano literature? Well, so House on Mango Street makes a frequent appearance. Um, another book that I've been teaching quite a bit recently is a book called The People of Paper by Salvador Placencia, um, which is this gorgeous postmodern experimental novel um, that's both about border crossers but also about authorship. It's it's a really beautiful book. Um, I also teach, um, at this coming fall, I'll be teaching a class on undocumented uh, literature, um, and so we'll be reading um, Demetria Martinez, her book Mother Tongue, um, which looks at the sanctuary movement. Um, uh, we'll be reading uh, The People of Paper, as I mentioned. Um, we'll be looking at um, a new book um, by Tim Hernandez called All They Will Call You, which mm-hmm. is actually a nonfiction account um, of a plane crash, uh, a plane that was carrying a um, Uh, Mexican and Mexican-Americans who were about to be deported um, that crashed in, in California. And Hernandez goes on a quest to identify these these people and give them names. Mm. Uh, so it's a, also just a wonderful, beautiful book. Mm. Um, and so those are some of the things that I'll be teaching. But, I mean, the sky's the limit, really. Um, beyond Chicano and, and Mexican-American literature, one of the other books my students really love um, is uh, The Book of Unknown Americans, which is a, 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 another beautiful a beautiful book by Cristina Enriquez. Um, and it's, um, it's one that really challenges them to reimagine what, what it means to be an immigrant, um, mm-hmm. what it means to be Latino, um, the diversity of Latino experience. So, What responses do these books usually receive from your um, students? Because I would imagine that your students would be placed in some uh, foreign uh, environment in terms of um, books and in terms of language as well, probably, and in terms of problems and issues that those books um, bring. Yeah, so James Madison, um, the, the, the classes that I teach tend to be uh, majority white students who on day one of the class admit they have little to no familiarity with um, the kinds of stories that we're going to be reading. Mm-hmm. And there is some hesitancy about dealing with um, a history and a culture that that, um, that they might not be familiar with. But I often find that, that what they're so compelled by, by the end of the semester, is the ways that the questions that these writers are asking and the, the stories that these characters are sort of allowing us to, to visit with them are stories 
that they connect with on a deep level. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you know, stories about people making decisions, as I said, about who they are or who they want to be. Mm-hmm. Those are questions that they can identify with. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, I, I find it very interesting the way that their resistance to, say, some writers who use more Spanish than others. So Juno Diaz is sort of famous for, you know, resisting translation in his books. Um, and and so the initial resistance that readers have and the students have often gives way to a kind of appreciation mm-hmm. for what it means to be an outsider as a reader, to, to imagine themselves, right? Um, it gives them a, a closer feeling with the characters in the book who are often themselves described as outsiders. So when the students can have an experience of being shut out from something, not being able to understand something, and are able to pause and reflect and say, God, how does that make me feel? when I am shut out, when I don't understand Mm -hmm. and when one's explaining things to me, Mm -hmm. I think it's actually, it's, it's quite an incredible experience to watch students kind of have this dawning realization of, yeah, sometimes I'm an outsider too. And, you know, and, and I think that that's, you know, of course the experiences are completely different, but some tiny shred of, of what alienation might feel yeah. like can be the beginning seed of, of empathy. Um, and that's really important to me. Yeah, yeah. So I'm also um, intrigued by one of those statements that you just made uh, about language, uh, whether it's a reliable factor for defining what literature we read. Yeah. Um, because, uh, well, if uh, a book is written in English, does it mean that it belongs to American literature or to yeah. British literature? Or yeah. when it's written in Spanish, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a really fascinating question. And one of the stories that I talk about, um, or one of the novels that I talk about in my book, is a, a book called Puppet, which is originally published in you might call it Spanglish, but it's 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 a great deal of Spanish with a little bit of English mixed in, <laughs> um, right? Meant to mimic the way that a lot of Mexican Americans speak, with the code switching um, and things like that. And and one of the reasons I imagine that the book um, unfortunately didn't stay in print or isn't as well known is precisely because we don't imagine it as completely belonging to American literature because there's so much Spanish in it, um, and that's that's a challenge. And I think. More and more, so this was a book that was written in the 1980s, I think more and more we're seeing writers insist, um, Mm -hmm. Diaz says, Spanish is an American language, right? (laughs) And so he's, you know, writers like that um, who are demanding a little bit more from their readers. Whether or not readers rise to that challenge is a completely, uh, that's completely unknown. Um, Mm -hmm. Most of my students do. But I can imagine that it's also it's also a way of closing some doors. Um, but I think writers of all kinds resist their readers, whether it's linguistically or formally. There are all kinds of ways um, uh, to challenge readers. I, I often just find it very interesting that we ask um, Latina writers or Latino writers in particular to stop challenging <laughs> their readers so much. Um, I think I think the challenge is healthy. I think it's good. Um, which is not to say that the writers who choose to accommodate readers with mm-hmm. translations or glossaries or things like that mm-hmm. have made a bad or wrong decision. That's, <laughs> um, <laughs> it simply um, adds to the multiplicity of the ways that we communicate, the mm-hmm. way that we, we recognize that 
we're never quite hearing the words. We're, not, we're always in this process of translation, even if every single word on the page is in English. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, you built your um, a book from the edge around the notion of body literature. Uh, and uh, But uh, the... You also include for your analysis some books which are which are not considered to be conventional border literature um, books. So, how do you define this term border literature? And um, from your research, um, uh, it looks like uh, this term can be expanded further, and those boundaries which were uh, established in the past uh, they can be blurred. Yeah, and I think this is a this is a this is tricky territory. Um, I think defining borderlands literature, defining literature of the border um, comes with its own set of challenges, just like defining any um, national or geographical literature, right? Where does it end and where does it begin? Um, so, so as you said, some of the texts that I've chosen for border literature don't necessarily count because a lot of times we imagine that the book needs to, the narrative needs to be set on the U.S.-Mexico border, mm-hmm. um, or either that or the author needs to have an intimate relationship with the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, but I think Gloria Saldura opens up the door for us to think a little bit more broadly about what other kinds of borderlands exist. So she describes sexual borderlands, psychological borderlands. And there is a danger in expanding that kind of definition too far. For me, what what kind of helped, helped me decide whether or not a text belonged to border literature in part was that the writers themselves don't imagine the border to be necessarily only geographically located, which is not to say that geography doesn't matter, Mm -hmm. but somebody like Cisneros who grew up in Chicago um, is somebody who who recognizes that the border follows you um, even if you find yourself moving further and further northward. It is, um, it's both a physical and a metaphorical location, and that comes with all kinds of challenges. Um, and so one of the goals that I had with the book was to in particularly include books like House on Mango Street to sort of challenge what it is that we think of when we think of border literature. Um, that's not to say that um, people might disagree with whether or not some of these books would count or not count. Um, but I think if we ignore the metaphor, if we ignore the way that the border functions as a metaphor, we're not doing um, complete justice to how how the border continues to be narrated over time. Um, so that that's... That's one of the things I was hoping to negotiate with the book. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, for me, it was, it was also important to expand outward to this notion of the edges of the book as constituting a borderlands as well, as, as constituting a space, a place that mm-hmm. is physical, that is rooted, that, that we can point to, and it's worth mapping those, those spaces and places too. Yeah, that's what I um, was thinking about when I was reading your uh, research. I was uh, thinking about uh, the notion of a uh, book in terms of uh, body um, concept as well. It's mm-hmm. like uh, a book itself presents this border um, territory for readers, for writers, for editors, for publishers. And I, I would like you to uh, talk a little bit uh, about the structure of this book, because um, uh, you include a lot of elements which uh, construct the paratext um, of a uh, book or of a publication, and you include such um, uh, items as glossaries and translation uh, notes, 
notes and even readers' notes, which also uh, constitute some dialogue between readers, not only between readers and readers, but readers and writers, readers and other communities. So, would you would you uh, talk a little bit about uh, um, the structure of the book and how those borders were constructed in your in your research? Or, yeah, absolutely. Or, or blurred. Or blurred. <laughs> it, is, it is both of those things, I yeah. think. Um, so what was important for me in uh, setting up the structure of the book, I had this goal in mind that at the beginning that I would set up the book so that each chapter took a piece of the puzzle that we think of when we think of what does it take to get a book published. So, of course, there's the author and the editor and the publisher um, and then finally the reader. And in some sense, that is the way um, that the chapters are laid out. But, of course, as you say, some of these things get, get a little bit blurry. So as I'm walking through the conversation about challenges that a particular author might face, whether that's Ana Castillo, who um, her book, Sapagonia, um, is published two times. She, she gets it published with a small press, and then it is republished um, with a, a sort of big five press. And so there's two versions of the same book, the same mm. title, but the books are not the same. Um, as I walk through the, the, the analysis of how the pages of those books tell us two very different stories, um, we also have to confront the reasons why there are these two versions of these two books. Um, what were the goals um, and intentions of the small press? What are the goals and intentions of the mainstream big five press? And how do how are they shaping um, this particular author um, with or without her consent? Um, likewise, as I move into talking a little bit about the politics of the page and what, how authors, editors, and publishers negotiate this question of language. How do I represent um, Spanish on the page, whether I use it italics or not, whether I include a glossary or not? Um, those are questions that are about what, it, what an author has control over, but they're also about decisions that are made by typesetters, by, um, by publishers who are strapped for money, right? Mm -hmm. um, there, there are also decisions that are being influenced by readers who have a certain set of expectations about what a page of Chicano literature is going to look like. Um, I'm also then interested in how archivists and scholars have um, constructed or, uh, or continue to construct these particular books and, and how their politics play out on the page um, so that we look at recovery projects and how the paratext of recovery projects influence how we read uh, these particular, the politics of these particular recovery projects. Um, and as you said, readers themselves, right, as we walk through so that by the time we reach the final chapter, although we're focused on readers and, and what they write in the margins of their book and whether or not that's valuable um, as evidence for how readers engage with text, we're still also talking about publishers and um, the author and and how they have controlled the space of the page to give readers room to respond. Um, so the goal there, again, if, I'm, I'm not sure if that was as clear as I would like it to be, but um, the goal there is to kind of walk through author, editor, publisher, scholar, and reader, um, but at the same time recognizing that all of these all of these actors in the production of any particular material text, their fingerprints 
are all over mm -hmm. those tags. Yeah, yeah, that section on recovery projects was very um, uh, insightful. And uh, you're raising uh, the question, how uh, do we decide what books should be restored or how those books get restored, actually? Um, would you say a little bit more about those uh, books that were actually restored or sure. recovered? Yeah, well, so in that chapter, I look at two particular examples. One is maybe one of the most famous pieces of the um, uh, U.S. Hispanic Literary Recovery Project, um, which is an amazing project that has just given us a wealth of information about um, Hispanic literature up to, I believe it's 1968. I, I believe that's as far as... Um, the project reaches. Um, and so one of the books that came out of that is a book um, called The Squatter and the Dawn, which is a book by Maria Amparo Ruiz de Burton. And it's um, it's this incredible book that, that tells the story of, um, of land grabbing in the aftermath of the U.S.-Mexico War. Um, and we're given the perspective of, of a family who who is trying to resist the encroaching Anglo um, sort of snapping up of, of land all around them. Um, but in that book, the editors who have recovered it, um, who done a remarkable job, um, can't help but, and this is true of any scholar, can't help but be um, uh, represent the justification for recovering such a project in any other way but through the politics or the lens of, of the early 1990s, which is when they recovered the book. And so we see in their, their paratextual material and we see in some of the decisions they make about whether or not to present certain pieces of the text um, as demonstrating a desire to recover this particular text and say that it belongs to the Chicano movement, even as the narrative mm -hmm. itself and even as the author's biography resists that in some important ways um, because we're always searching for the reason why we need this text. Um, I mean, in, you know, as a, as a teacher who's got a, you know, who's building a syllabus every, you know, for every semester, you only have so many, you only have room for so many books on the syllabus. And so why, why this book, why does this book need to be the one students read what's going to be so memorable about it? Um, so I, I, and making this book memorable by connecting it to this long history of political activism that's tied to the Chicano movement makes perfect sense. Um, but in some ways it, it also has the potential to elide or erase some of the complications that the, not the narrative itself might otherwise introduce to that sort of tidy narrative. Um, the other book that I write about in that particular chapter is, is Puppet, is the, the aggressively bilingual um, novel by Margarita Cota Cárdenas. And it's, a, again, a, a, it's a gorgeous book. I've only managed to, as you said, I've only managed to teach it once um, because students have a very hard mm, time with mm. that one in particular. Um, but in that case, we see how the politics of recovery, you know, um, justifying why this book needs to be remembered um, also get tied up in the politics of language and of translation because the, the proposed solution for uh, involved in recovering the text is to introduce a translation. Um, it is a text that, that's not entirely in Spanish, so the question of how to translate and for whom becomes a really interesting one. Um, scholars, um, I think, um, would 
be benefited by thinking thinking more about right that that question of for whom um because the survival is i i am thrilled right and i have i i only want to see these books survive because i do think that they're amazing incredible works that maybe don't get the attention that they they deserve and and in part hopefully the book um does does give them a little bit more attention um but i think we we might also spend some more time thinking about the mechanisms by which we right we insert ourselves we insert our own particular politics um into these texts it's unavoidable it's inescapable but it's also worth studying um mm -hmm. I think that's important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there is also a section in your uh, book which um, uh, offers some discussion of translations and different translations of the same book and different yeah. translations of the same word. And then you illustrate how those different translations actually shape uh, readers' perception of the book and readers' understanding of the um, of the book itself. So um, uh, could you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, those translations that you found the most intriguing and the most uh, crucial, for example, for the understanding of the whole texts. Well, um, I'm I'm curious because uh, translation comes up in, in a few different places. I'm I'm wondering if you're which um, chapter you might be thinking of. Um, is it? There was a section where you were discussing a uh, translation of one particular word, um, and um, different editions were proposing different translations, or they were emitting that word completely. I think it was about. Um, I, I can't. I can't remember the exact <laughs> word. It was in the section of transcultural typography. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh. Oh. Um... Yeah, there are a few things um, in that in that particular one. Um, so um, there's there are some examples of um, uh, one of the books that I talk about um, in that in that chapter is um, I'm blanking on the name of it. That's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> um, so uh, well, I, I th think maybe what you're you might be um, thinking of is um, the section that's on a book called Memory, Memories of the Alhambra uh, by Nash Candelaria, where there's some typographical issues um, that have to do with um, the fact that when that book was first printed, it wasn't printed with accent marks. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are some ways in which, because the accent marks don't exist, names change, potentially meanings change, um, so that if somebody um, in, in uh, a particular section um, says the word C, and there is no accent mark mm -hmm, over that. Mm -hmm. It changes from yes to if, mm -hmm. um, which could, could make you know make a big difference if if somebody's asking a question and answering with the word C um, to to figure out whether or not um, that person is saying yes or if. Particularly when that the question being asked is Are you Mexican? Mm -hmm. um, which is a whole nother layer to that particular story in Memories of the Alhambra. We're we're following characters who aren't sure about whether they want to embrace a Mexican identity or, or, or even a Chicano identity as opposed to a Hispanic identity, mm -hmm. which comes with the sort of legacies of colonialism, um, but also whiteness. Um, so asking a person if they're Mexican mm -hmm. and answering yes or if, it changes, changes what that answer means. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if that's the exact example that you were thinking of, um, but it is one that, that's fairly memorable to me. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and that's this uh, page one forty four, <laughs> and it's a different difference between Mama Sita and Mama Sota. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, oh, <laughs> well, in this case, right? Um, uh, so in this case, we're talking about the house on Mango Street, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, and in this case, we're talking about a, a reader who has read, the, who's seen the word mamacita, oh. uh, which just means, you know, cute little mama or something like that, uh, but doesn't necessarily mean wife, which that is the word that the the reader has written in the margins. So we see a failure of translate, a potential failure of translation in that particular moment where, um, right, they're not not too far off, but also not exactly correct. So what we witness in looking at this reader evidence is a reader trying to grasp the language so to the extent that they're writing in writing translations in the margins, but the translation itself is is not quite successful, <laughs> which makes us wonder. So, how are they perceiving the rest of this text? What other things are they mistranslating? Again, whether they're in Spanish or or in English, where what other misunderstandings are potent are potentially realized when we look at this kind of marginalia? Um, yeah, that's a really it's a it's a kind of sweet. <laughs> Slightly funny example, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, yeah. but those uh, readers' notes are always very interesting, and uh, oh. well, I myself always pay attention to those notes. And uh, obviously, you discuss those notes in terms of some academic um, approach. So, um, and uh, I believe your students would also be very intrigued about uh, uh, this discussion of <laughs> of um, uh, some others' readers' uh, re- remarks or comments. Yeah. <laughs> I have actually my my students are uh, fairly well aware that I really love to read marginalia, <laughs> and so every once in a while at the end of a semester, a student will give me a marked up copy of one of their books, and mm. those are treasures for me. So I I always love that. I love having I've got a couple copies of House on Mango Street, um, some copies of James Joyce's Dubliners, and other things where they've they've kind of you know made a little bit of a, a joke about how much I love reading the marginalia mm-hmm. because it is to me it's it's incredibly insightful um it's not always trustworthy um in in the examples that I use they're anonymous um and they come from the copies of the house on mango street that I purchased for the research come from all over the country um so to a certain extent I there's there are just infinite unknowns about who these readers are and what they're thinking. And yet what they leave behind Mm -hmm. is still so rich with a sense of how they read and what they read and what they don't read. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A heavily marked up book that towards the end, suddenly there are no marks. You realize they probably didn't finish this book. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there are fascinating things to be found um, in these otherwise kind of disposable markings. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe in terms of this discussion about um, uh, readers' notes, maybe we can uh, talk a little bit about uh, gl- glossaries. How are they mm-hmm. composed, and uh, what additional information they contribute to uh, books themselves? Yeah, uh, that's that's a question that has um, fascinated me throughout this whole project as well. Because as I, I said before, there are some authors um, who who choose to include um, glossaries mm-hmm. or, or or at the very least don't um, resist them. Um, sometimes it's a, it's a it's a bit of a puzzle to figure out who inserted 
the um, the glossary, if it was the author themselves. In the case of um, Raymond Barrio, it's very clear that he he um, he included. Or I'm sorry, pardon me. That's Ernesto Galarza um, who includes a glossary um, in his book. He it's very intentional because it's also very sarcastic. Um, but in other cases, it seems more likely that it's a publisher who's inserted a glossary, sort of as a mediator between the author and the audience. Um, and so, what interests me about that is um, physically about the, the location of these kind of glossaries. We tend to find them at the end of a text, sometimes at the beginning, um, but also about what they imply, again, about what the relationship is between English and Spanish, as if it's always as simple as a one-to-one correspondence between the word in Spanish and the word in English. Mm -hmm. And what I found when we look closely at these glossaries, especially in the books of um, uh, Chicano border writers, is that the glossaries themselves sort of resist that that attempt to make it quite that easy. Mm -hmm. So you'll see multiple translations for a, a single word. You'll see that there are words in the text that somehow are not in the glossary, as if they refuse to be translated. Um, you'll see, as I said with um, Ernesto Galarza, there's... Um, sarcastic or funny or not quite genuine translations that again could fool a reader. Um, there are, I'm thinking of another example uh, of a book called When I Was Puerto Rican by uh, Esmeralda Santiago, and she uses phonetic spelling as part of the glossary. And it's, <laughs> uh, in some ways, it um, it forces the reader to kind of become a bit of a childlike parrot um, with the phonetic spelling. Mm -hmm. So there are ways in which even the glossary itself, it presents this story about the relationship between Spanish and English. But if we look at it more closely, the story is a little bit more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. uh, it resists that easy substitution of English for Spanish, I think. I see. Yeah. When I first discovered your uh, book, From the Edge, I was very intrigued by your research because uh, I myself uh, grew up in some double linguistic space. I was born in Ukraine and uh, I was growing up speaking Ukrainian and Russian. But um, at some point, the choice of a language becomes personal and political. Yeah, And I think you somehow describe uh, something to this effect. It's page uh, 52, and um, if you don't mind, I can read out this paragraph. Whether they speak some Spanish or none at all, the question of whether and how to include Spanish in their literary texts in both uh, is both personal and political. For bilingual Chicano-Chicano border writers, inhabiting both English and Spanish can be a dangerous and yet incredibly powerful position. They and their characters often describe being cast out or mistrusted by speakers on either side of the divide, even feared by those who recognize in them the power to destabilize language, knowledge, and reality. As in the case with many Latino-Latino writers, they can belong fully to both and or neither language, but they must at some point negotiate the boundaries between them as they aim to communicate with readers. So I, I find this paragraph very insightful, especially in terms of that alienation um, that you already mentioned and alienation which can be described not only in terms of um, uh, political situation, but uh, personal, cultural, linguistic. And it also probably... Um, uh, puts the writers or the readers again in some alienated position, but it also opens up some new perspectives, which uh, in the end turn out to be very enriching. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of these moments in Puppet, this novella, where we're watching um, the protagonist of that book is a woman who's sort of um, negotiating a mental breakdown, but she's mm-hmm. also negotiating her relationship to both Spanish and to English. And so at one point in the novel, it, um, she thinks about the very, fir- the very first phrase that she said in in English, which is, I'm American, right, or American-born, that that's the very first thing that she's, that, that, that ties her to the English language is also, and it happens at a border checkpoint, that this is somehow, this is personal and it's political, Mm -hmm. this is about what to, to which country do you belong, and how does your language either confirm or betray that. Um, There's also another moment in the book where she describes, she says, when you dream, you dream in English, and Mm -hmm. there are these ways in which that, that personal experience of how you go through life navigating multiple languages um yeah it is it can be it it can be hard for some readers to connect to if they don't have that particular experience but it's also so completely eye-opening to recognize that for some people for many people they negotiate multiple worlds as they switch from one language to another Uh, so um as you mentioned, um, the uh, uh, usage of language uh, can be political, and again, uh, the structure of the book can also contribute something to this political conversation. Would you elaborate on that a little bit, about the political choices that uh, paratexts offer? Sure. Um, well, and so an example, like the, the question of to include or not include mm-hmm. a glossary, um, if an author has control over something like that, um, that tells us quite a bit about how they're connecting with their readers, to what extent do they want to be read, to what extent do they want to challenge readers, who do they imagine their audience is. So often, I think, um, and I'm guilty of this as well, we make the mistake of assuming that Chicano writers are writing for white readers, and in fact, that may not be the case at all, um, and to the extent to which they care about whether or not I can translate um, what they're saying is probably very far from the front of their mind. Um, other decisions that I think are interesting um, are uh, inclusions of illustrations and things like that. So one of my favorite examples from the book is the inclusion of um, a map of this fictional area that Rolando Hinojosa writes about in his book um, that's been translated as Sketches of the Valley, or other otherwise translated as just the valley. Um, there are, depending on which edition you read, there are different maps of the same space. And one of those, Inohosa drew himself, and it's um, it's an image that frustrates our understanding of, right, again, a traditional kind of Western notion of what a map should look like or what a map should include. Um, and those kinds of political choices, right, to, to confront the reader from page one with a map that they need to decipher, even though they don't really know the rules of how the map works, suggests some some decision making about again how do we want to approach our audience how do how do i want to confront an audience how do i want to challenge them to reimagine a borderland space beyond the sort of traditional notion that we have mm-hmm. of this point on a map um other choices that i think um, I think somebody like Sandra Cisneros may, you know, it's hard to tell how much control she had over the book, but she and her publishers make in um, the layout of her text, mm-hmm. uh, which includes vast swaths of white space um, so that it, it both reads like a 
maybe a young reader's chapter book, but it also opens up so much blank space for a reader to occupy or colonize if, you know, if we want to be pessimistic about it. Um, but there are, there are ways in which those, those choices about what the page is going to look like, whether to italicize Spanish or to insist that Spanish not be italicized, that it needs to be normalized. Um, some writers are making those choices deliberately um, and they carry with them some political really powerful political weight, I think. Mm -hmm. So I greatly enjoyed uh, reading your book, not only because I'm very interested in literature, but because I was reading your book from my per personal experience as well. So thank you so much <laughs> for this fascinating <laughs> research. I'm, I'm glad to know that, uh, that there are other ways of that thinking about the U.S.-Mexico border doesn't necessarily need to be limited right. to people who are interested in Chicano literature. That's before. right. So what's your uh, current project? Well, so I am um, currently, I'm continuing to work and publish um, on issues of textual materialism as it relates to um, Chicano writers. Um, I'm, I'm currently interested um, in working on a project um, that has to do with the first edition of um, Rudolfo Corky Gonzalez's famous uh, epic poem, Yo Soy Joaquin, which was this poem that sort of coincides with and also contributed to the flourishing of the beginning of the Chicano movement. Um, it was originally published with illustrations, mm. um, but I think I think not too many people know about the illustrations or the history of um, how how that edition came to be made. So I'm I'm working on studying that um, quite a bit, um, and the larger project that I'm working on is. Um, considering the question, and I've started with um, Chicano writers, considering the question of posthumous publication. There are a great mm -hmm. deal of Mexican-American, Chicano, and Latino writers who, um, have, who have died leaving behind works um, that other writers, friends, and editors have, have sought to recover mm -hmm. um, and to publish, um, even, even in the midst of their passing. Um, and I'm interested in the questions of, of uh, what that means, how that, how that changes our notion of authorship, how that changes our notion of editorship, what it means, what, what kind of intimacy is produced when you are finishing a book for a friend or a loved mm -hmm. one, um, and why is it why is it that we need those books? What do we get from from those kinds of books? So it's it's another question of of how how the materiality of a of a text speaks to larger political questions, mm -hmm. but also questions of of um, of intimacy as well. Well, uh, these projects sound f fascinating, and um, uh, good luck on all of them. And uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, very soon we'll read some new publications. <laughs> well, <laughs> we will have sure. some new discussions. <laughs> well, yeah. thank you so much, Alison. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. This was it was wonderful to chat. Thank you.